All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to another virtual service with The Bridge Church here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. My name is Adam Condit. I am providing the message today, as I did last week, as uh, our normal speaking pastor, Jerry, is out for some recovery with some knee surgery. And so, again, it is a joy to be with you. The way that we are with each other this year is a little bit more virtual, but um, I'm, I'm glad to be here and, and continue to keep moving through First Peter. All right. So, and by the way, my first message last week, uh, I didn't realize how much controversy it would stir up in the church body, but I got a lot of text messages uh, regarding only wrapping the trunks of the trees with lights and not finishing the job. So a lot of, a lot of division in the church right now with what's helpful with Christmas decorations. But I know we can get through this. And just remember, Jesus is the reason for this season. Okay, let's keep our eyes on Jesus and less about the lights, even though it's just a, it's, it's a terrible look. Okay, here we go. I'm going to pray for us, and we are going to get going. All right. Lord, um, only you can do what, what you do, and we, we believe that the real work here is uh, your work. And so I pray that you would, again, calm me down, get myself um, right with, with your spirit, and that you would provide the power, and you would provide the message today, God. I pray for those um, listening to this, whether it's on video or on audio, um, on Sunday or a different day, weeks later, months later, that you would provide the particular messaging um, to their spirit, not just to their ears that you have for them, God. We know that you're in control and sovereign of how you work together with um, all of this, and we pray for your power. Amen. All right, before we get back into 1 Peter 4, I want to share an experience that my family has had, and I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure you've had that same feeling, the feeling of getting off of work on a Friday and, and being ready for like a really fun weekend. We had, we had a vacation planned, uh, just kind of a quick little getaway down to the Wisconsin Dells, and you know that feeling. When you're getting out of work Thursday, Friday, if you work traditional hours or the, the traditional work week, um, you're kind of finishing up work and you're anticipating being together. And for us, it was a season and a time where we hadn't been able to get away for a long time. So we were really amped up. We were really pumped. And uh, we're, we're heading down to the Dells, right? So I don't know about you and your family, but for me and my family, that 10, 20 minutes before we leave for vacation is like total chaos. People are flying around. You got to get the kids with their shoes on and the coats and make sure that you have the suitcase. And, and we're packing the car in the back of the car, in the side of the car, on the top of the car. We're just getting stuff ready. And it's kind of chaotic and we're not really communicating well. And we're just kind of, we're all scrambling, right? And then finally we get in the car and we go, right? And uh, it was great. We're going down. We're kind of shut off from the outside world and we're ready for this quick little getaway vacation. And uh, it was great until we arrived at our spot and we realized that we forgot, well, should restart that sentence. We all realized that I forgot the suitcase back at the house. And when I say the suitcase, it is the suitcase for all five of us, which includes bathing suits, which includes clothes, toiletry, like everything. I don't even know what we packed in the car. We might have packed like our jackets and music and just kind of everything but the suitcase. 
So you can imagine we're scrambling once again. It's kind of a monkey wrench in the, in the whole plan here. But we, we realize, okay, I could certainly drive back, maybe even in the morning, like 4 a.m., I just drive back to Eau Claire, and then I make the trip back while people are sleeping and get the suitcase. That would be one option. But we decided to go get our stuff at Walmart. And we're just going to go to the Wisconsin Dells Walmart, and we're going to buy our stuff. Like, we just bought really cheap uh, bathing suits for the kids. I got like this like $4 gray cotton shirt that I wore for four days. It was fine. And we just kind of just went to Walmart and tried to peach, like patch together what we needed. And we're walking through Walmart. Everyone's a little on edge. The kids know mom and dad aren't like having the time of their life yet. And we're, we're walking through. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people at Walmart at like 10.30 p.m. Not as many kids our ages, but we're dragging the whole family through Walmart. And it's kind of a hassle. And all of a sudden... My, my middle kid, I think he's like five years old at the time, he looks up and he just goes, man, there are a lot of people that forgot their suitcase in Wisconsin Dells here, right? Like he thought the only reason that you would be at Walmart right now is for the same reason that we are at Walmart, which is we forgot the suitcase. It, we, we're all doing the same thing, which is going to the same store, but in his mind, we all have the same motivation. We all have the same reason for being there. Okay, so this is what we're going to talk about today is the difference between our outside actions and what we're doing. We're all going to Walmart, but I've got a different reason. I've got a different motivation for being there than someone else going and getting pork chops or someone else that is going to the electronics you know, department or someone else that actually works there. So there's all different motivations for being in the same place. And Jesus talks a lot about the difference between doing stuff and being, having our visible outside shell of ourselves, like what people can see and what we do with our actions, as opposed to our motivations and what's inside and what's driving that, um, what's driving that, that action. And Jesus says a lot about this, not what we do, but why we do that, okay? So we're going to keep walking through 1 Peter 4, and just as a quick reminder, I've kinda, I have it at the top here this time. 1 Peter 4 climaxes next week with how we can suffer well. And, and we look at Christ's sufferings and how we, get, we can get to a place where Christians are in a place of suffering and we actually rejoice. It seems backwards, but we rejoice in the fact that we can suffer well as Christ suffered well. But right, right now, this kind of middle week here, we're going to talk about loving well. Last week, we talked about living well and kind of shedding our old life, our old flesh, having Christ die, we die to sin, and we live in the Spirit. Now we're going to talk about loving well, to get us to suffering well. All right, so let's read verse 7 and 8 together. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So we see this contrast here. We start in verse 7, which is kind of piggybacking off of what we talked about last week with not going to the drunkenness parties, having a different lifestyle, not living in your flesh and living in the Spirit, having a different lifestyle than the world, and not being conformed but being transformed. And it says, yes, the end of all things is at hand. That means Jesus has died, he's risen, and he's ascended into heaven, and now we're waiting his return. So we live in that same time period. Even as First Peter 
uh, wrote the, even as Peter wrote this in his book, okay? So we live in the same time period we're awaiting Christ, and it could happen at any time. Therefore, live a different life. Be, be self-controlled and sober-minded and do things differently. So we're still talking about our outside shell, right? What people see should be different, and the Bible talks a lot about that, and it matters what we do. But above all, keep loving one another. That's internal. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So we see this. It's not a contrast because they go together. A different lifestyle motivated by an internal affection for Christ, okay? Verse 7 and 8 shows that well. And verse 9 is where I'm going to actually spend the most time today. Verse 9 is the shortest verse, but it's where I'm going to spend the most time talking about hospitality without grumbling. And it's not just all about what we think of hospitality, but let's read this short verse and get into it. 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality, so do things, to one another without grumbling. There's an internal, this is kind of in the negative. It's written in the negative. Don't do it with grumbling. Or you could say in the positive way, do it with joy. Okay? So show hospitality, do things, have people over, show them your life, be different, you're doing things, your life is living, and there's an outward appearance of that, but also without grumbling. So there's an inward reality that's pushing out what we do. And this is important because, I don't know about you, but it would be a lot easier for me to swallow this verse if it just said, do things, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This carries a lot of weight. And Jesus talks a lot about how we love one another rather than just how we serve one another. Both are important, but let's talk about this, okay? So I want to get into, what, what does hospitality mean? This is a little bit foreign to us in America, not the, not the fact or the word hospitality, but the context that, that's, that's being written here is the fact that the inns and, and the ways that people would stay as they go to different towns in, in Peter's context are very filthy and dangerous and dirty. So it's up to other people, Christians primarily, to be hospitable that was very countercultural. See, we live in a culture that's very comfortable and people do have a lot of... A lot of shelter and warmth in their house, but there's also hotels. Like we can just go places and, and travel and it's just not different. And in fact, sometimes it's easier to just get a hotel, right? But this is countercultural. It says, open up your home and be hospitable and meet people's needs where they're at. So serve people in a way that the inn that's dangerous and dirty isn't going to serve them. So serve people. Okay. Just tell me what to do. This isn't just put out Doritos on the table, and that's hospitality, even though that's kind of my way of, you know, when I have the guys over, it's like, hospitality, open bag of Doritos, I'm done. Like, we do things, but with a glad heart. Show hospitality, meet people where they're at, serve them, not necessarily, hey, I've got a great house, and I want you to see it so you can look at me differently. That's sometimes the entertainment that people can do. So there's a difference between entertaining, which is putting the focus on me, and hospitality, which is putting the focus on what people need and what they need to, to have done in their life, where, where are their needs being met. 
do that, do those things, do stuff without grumbling. An inward affection without grumbling, with joy. Okay? That's hard. Here's some examples, like, I'm just going to put it out there, okay? The Breakup is a movie that's kind of a weird, dumb movie. It's about Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston acting it, and they, they go through this breakup, right? And they're, they're living together, and then they, they have conflict like, like most relationships do, and, and then they end up breaking up. But there's this scene in there that's like really, really um, relatable, and there's a line in there that, to me, defines the whole movie because it hits home. And, and they're going through this break. They have a big blow-up and a big fight, right? And, and they're not seeing, like, who's supposed to pick up and who's not picking up and who's doing the dishes and, and who's doing what. And they're, they're just on different pages with how this is supposed to operate, their life, their apartment, everything. Like, it just blows up and there's anger and they're just, like, going crazy. And then a day later, they come back and they have the discussion about what happened. And there's a line in there that gets to the difference of doing stuff as opposed to why we're doing it, what's on the inside. And this defined the whole movie because this is a big part of my marriage and just how I treat my wife sometimes, right? The line is, I want you to do the dishes. Like, there's a, there's a conflict on who should do the dishes. I want you to do the dishes. Why would I? Okay, we disagree on, on who's going to do it at what time. And then, and then Jennifer Aniston's character, she says one, one step further, I want you to want to do the dishes. And Vince Vaughn goes, why would I want to do the dishes? Like, what, who wants to do dishes? He's still operating out of his own desires to not do something. And what, what's really being said, I want you to want to do the dishes. What's really being said is, I want you inwardly to appreciate me. And dishes might be part of that. I want you to recognize me. I want you to serve me well. And dishes might be part of that. So what's really grinding here is the inward motivations of how we live. And it is very Christ-like to serve without grumbling, okay? Without grumbling. This is tough. I heard this all growing up. I don't remember specific examples, but I, I just remember hearing this, talking about picking up the house and what, you know, mom's coming home and, and the kids and dad are trying to like pick up the house. We thought it'd be cleaner and oh, she just texted, she's on her way home. When I was a kid, I would hear this constantly. It wasn't just do this, go pick that up. This needs to be cleaner. This is what needs to be done on the outside. This is how my dad would put it. I want to make mom smile so much. I want to put a huge smile on mom. Let's pick up. And I mean, depending on the age or the mood I was in, I was kind of like, okay, whatever. Like, just tell me where to pick up. It's easier to just be told what to do. Am I right? Just tell me what to do and let me know when I'm done. But... We're at the heart here. This is the heart of Christianity. When I was a math teacher, I mean, part, I mean, I was a high school math teacher for a few years before we moved back to Eau Claire, and part of me just wanted to pull my hair out because I felt like I was just telling kids to do their homework, do this, do this, you got to do the work, you got to do the work, you got to do the work, and I never want Christianity to feel that way. 
And what I really experienced in my most joyful moments as a teacher isn't when I was just going, you got to do the work, you got to get it in. It's when that aha moment when kids loved to do math, when there was an internal love of what we're doing. And yes, we're doing things, but there's, it's being driven by, wow, you know how incredible the unit circle is? Do you guys have any, anywhere out there, you're listening to this in Eau Claire, do you have any idea how incredible the unit circle is? Have you ever fallen in love with radians? Okay, that's the, that's the love of math that I wanted in my classroom. And I didn't get it a lot of the time, but when it was there, there's a difference. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to want to want to do the dishes. It's beautiful to want to do your homework. And the work still needs to get done, and our lives are different as Christians, and we still do things, but it's beautiful when we do it without grumbling, and when there's an affection to go out that springs up like a well, it like bursts out of us, and you can't help but do the dishes because mom's gonna have a big smile. And that gave dad a big smile in my household. So we do get a return on serving people. We do get a return. Remember last week we talked about the last shall be first. I believe that's at the heart of that message. When you serve without grumbling and you have an affection for their happiness, you get a return. It compounds. It's not a a transaction where they get the happiness at the expense of my happiness. You get happiness in their happiness if you love them. This is the Christian life. This is why we share the gospel. Because it does, sharing the gospel in grumbling just doesn't make sense. Sharing the gospel out of joy because you've been saved from death and hell and you want that for someone else makes sense. And our joy is exploding as their joy is coming to fruition. It's compounding. All right, let's keep talking. Let's keep talking about the way that, how did Jesus talk about this stuff? Because I don't want this to just be um, my thoughts. It certainly isn't my thoughts. I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pastor in the Twin Cities. His name is John Piper. This is at the heart of his ministry. His best-selling book is called Desiring God, and it's all about desiring God, desiringgod.org. It's a great website. That's his whole ministry is getting people to fall in love with God, not to just do things, but to love things in the Christian faith. Okay, so it's not just me. It's not just John Piper. This is at the heart of St. Augustine and talking about the affections and the Puritans and back to Paul and we see Peter and ultimately back to Jesus. Okay, Jesus talks. How did Jesus talk when it came to sin, when it came to life and community with God? That's what I want to land on. Okay, so we're going to actually go to Matthew and hear some of the words of Jesus. Okay, let me switch over to Matthew here. Matthew 23 talks about how does Jesus talk about sin. So get your Bibles out. We're going to be in Matthew 23. I'm actually going to back up a little bit and be in Matthew 22, verse um, 36 right now. So right before chapter 23, let me read this real quick. Chapter 22 in Matthew, and chapter 21 actually, Jesus is talking and explaining a lot of things. He's got some parables. He's starting to teach. People are starting to like realize what he's all about. And the Pharisees and people that are kind of like intimidated by his words and by his teachings, because he's not uh, he's not a, 
he's, he is a rabbi, he is a Jew, but he's not a Pharisee in the way that he would be only teaching in the temple. He's like taking this message to the people. So they're a little bit intimidated by the authority that he keeps exercising, right? And they keep challenging his authority. And then in verse 22, they keep asking him questions and they're trying to like trap him. And they're saying, okay, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the best thing I can do? Where's the best place in the house to pick up toys right now? Just tell us what to do and what's the greatest thing to do. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. He goes inside. And with all your soul and with all your mind. He goes inside because he knows that drives the outside action. This is the great and first commandment. All right, well, what's the second greatest commandment? It's got to be something that we can just do. Make it easy for us and give me my checklist, please, God. <clears throat> Here's number two. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When we talk about what Jesus wants, he goes to the heart. And when we talk about what Jesus doesn't want, he goes to how our heart is corrupted. When Jesus talks about sin, he also goes to the heart. Let's go a little bit further. Right? Matthew 23. What do we verse? Matthew 23, verse 25. Let's pick it up there. So <clears throat> to get, even get into verse, uh, chapter 23, chapter 23 takes a different tone. He starts to do like all, like he basically is coming at the Pharisees with how hypocritical they are. And there's seven different ways that he's approaching their hypocrisy and telling them, yeah, you know the law, but you don't do it in the right way with the right heart motivation. At the very end of uh, chapter 22, right before this, uh, it's, it's almost laughable, even though it's not. Um, when he says, like, they're asking him all these questions, and then after he, after he answers this question about David and how he's actually the Messiah, they said, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions? So the answers Jesus has given are kind of unforeseen to them and their religion and their system of laws. And all of a sudden he comes and now he goes on kind of the offensive. Jesus talks very starkly to the Pharisees. Okay, chapter 23 in Matthew, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He's very direct. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, clean first the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside will also be clean. He's speaking to the inward affections will drive your outward actions. He continues, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly, outwardly appear beautiful on the outside, but it's a tomb. But within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus takes the difference between outward actions and lifestyles and inward affections and love for God and love for others and serving in the right motivation very seriously. Very seriously. He gives us a category of sin that says it looks right, but it's wrong. Certainly murder and lying and all the wrong-looking sins are still wrong, but the right-looking sins can be wrong. 
when you, when you see what's inside driving those. Have you ever thought about how sinful it could be to lead a Bible study or pray in public a certain way? Have you ever thought about how sinful it could be to do correct things with the wrong motivation? This is exactly when Jesus is the most direct and angry in the Bible. When people are committing adultery and trapped in their outward, like, messy sin, the woman at the well, he's very compassionate and has a different demeanor to get under, because he knows there's a sin corruption in all of us, and she's trapped. Whereas this category of sin, that we're doing correct, socially acceptable lifestyles and following the Jewish law, but we still have hypocrisy in our heart, is so much more blinding and detrimental to ourselves and to people around us. So he's very direct with the Pharisees, and they've been living in it a long time. Okay? So that's how Jesus talks about sin. He doesn't just say, yeah, don't be angry. He says, well, he doesn't say don't murder. He says to be angry is the same thing as murder. The inside corruption in us is the same thing as the outward working of murder. He doesn't just say don't do adultery. He says, don't lust. That's inward. He doesn't just say, you know, David started to sin when he had Bathsheba in adultery and killed, right? Killed her husband. There's murder and adultery. The sin started when he was looking and lusting and wanting and desiring what he didn't have. And the desire inside drives the outward actions, okay? So, Let's continue onward. What does, let's go back here. Because it's, it's not all like doom and gloom. I feel like I'm giving us a, a precedent that everything is sinful, and it's not. It's not, right? Right-looking things with the wrong motivation is sinful, but right-looking things with the right motivation is not sinful. It's not wrong to lead a Bible study. We need people to lead Bible studies. We need people to do right things with the right motivations, that's why we have to be in community about this stuff. So we know ourselves well and we can be honest with each other and with ourselves. When am I slipping in and out of idolatry and serving myself in all of these things? All right, let's also look at Matthew 5. Because if, if Jesus talks a lot about sin and death and, and what's corrupting us on the inside, well, how does Jesus even talk about life and community with God? How does Jesus talk about a good life and to have Life, not death. So, so don't just tell me, Jesus, that we're all hypocrites because there are pharisaical hypocrisies in myself. Like this isn't just those people. We all need to be honest with our motivations. And it's tricky because the heart is trickier than the action and the to-do list and the list of things that I should do and the list of things that I shouldn't do. But Jesus, be honest with me about what sin is. But also, Jesus, be honest with me about what is life. Let's go backwards a little bit in Matthew to Matthew 5. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus starts to begin his ministry. And the crowds are gathering right at Matthew 5. I'm going to start in verse 3 right at the beginning. The Beatitudes. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the people that follow the rules, that hold the law. Nope. He goes inward on all of these. All of these, he goes inward. 
And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This doesn't mean to be um, depressed and to be down. It means to have a, a, an appreciation for how broken your spirit is, for your sinful condition. To be aware of your brokenness is to be poor in spirit. I wasn't born right like Jesus was born without sin. I was born broken. We're all born broken. That's what it means to be aware and to be poor in spirit. That's the start. That's the start. We need to acknowledge there's a brokenness in us. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. This is all internal. Here's verse 6, which we're going to camp on a little bit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That sounds good. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then here, verse 8, I'm going to stop here. Blessed are the pure in heart. He goes straight internal. To have a pure heart, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. Okay? So let's spend a little time on verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. What does it mean to, to be satisfied? I think we all kind of know when you eat that meal and you're hungry and it hits the spot and you can sit back and go, oh. you can rest in that. Like in and of itself, there's almost like nothing after the meal. It's like you, just in that moment, Right? We can be physically satisfied. We can be spiritually satisfied. We have this world and creation, and we can, we can experience satisfaction in many different ways. What's the purpose of water? God created us with a, a certain design. Why did he create us to drink so much water? Why did he create us to rest so many hours every night? What's the purpose of all this? What's the purpose of being hungry? Can't we just not have hungry? Can we just not have hunger? Can we just not have thirst? These are all pointers to how satisfaction is. We're born to be satisfied. We're born to have that feeling of when you're really dehydrated and your mouth is parched and it's dry and it's cracked lips and then you get that pure water. That, oh. We're made for this. And all these little weak, dim pointers point towards God's satisfaction. All these little things like sex in the right context and water in the right context. Because you could also drink salt water if you're, if you're dehydrated and that'll kill you. And you can also misplace sex in the wrong way and it's death. It's not satisfying in the long run. You can take all these earthly things and have little pointers towards how God is and how satisfying he is and how unsatisfying our own flesh is. That's the purpose of water. And so we have a category in our life for being satisfied and, be, and not being thirsty because God ultimately doesn't leave us thirsty. All of our jobs and our money go away and our families and, and all these things can be somewhat satisfying, but they aren't eternally satisfying. Just think of never being thirsty ever again in your life. That's just like your, your, your mouth. Think about never being, never being thirsty in your soul ever. Ever. So the garage door can break, like my example was last week, and I'm just operating out of joy. And what, okay, what needs to be done? 
It's just my nature has been changed, okay? That's what we're getting. And, and this is where I'm going with that, and we're going to get off verse 9 here in a sec. It says, let me read it again. So that's the, that's the end of the verse. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We need to hunger and thirst for the righteousness. How do you do that? How do you change your taste buds? How do you hunger for the right things? I have a story about this, and I'm gonna. My sister turned 40 this week, and she's great, and she's walking with the Lord, and I love her to death, and uh, she's amazing. She lives in Iowa, and I just can't say enough about my sister. But when we were young, I mean, she still has this in her life, by the way. But she's a little messed up when it comes to her sense of smell. I'm just gonna put it out there. We used to be driving on family trips, and we would smell a skunk, and she would go. Oh, I love the smell of skunk. Oh, yeah, give me that. Let's go. Where's that skunk? She had this, like, sense. She had a hunger. It's not a, it's not a hunger. That's taste. It's not, a, it's not a thirst. But she had this, like, smelling, like, desire. She had this internal desire for skunk. Did she choose that? Did I choose what smells good to me? Do I choose that I hate the taste of olives? but I love the taste of pizza? Do we pick up the pizza instead of the olives? Do we do things? Are we accountable for what we put in our mouth? Yes. Are we accountable for how we act? Yes. But what do we want? Where do our desires, where do our taste buds, when are our taste buds formed? When are our spiritual taste buds formed? How do I get my taste buds to enjoy righteousness? How do I get my taste buds to not enjoy the flesh and not love the darkness, as it says we're all born into. How do I do that? And the answer is, God does it. The answer is, I don't need to just tell my sister to stop smelling the skunk. I don't need to just tell my students when I'm a math teacher to get the job done and to, and to just do their thing. What I ultimately want is for them to love math because then they'll do math. I ultimately want my sister to actually have a different sense of smell so she stops smelling the bad smell. We need a nature change. We need our senses to be changed. And we believe God does that. We believe God is in charge of taking not just behavior management, and now that I've grown up in the church or now that I understand the Bible more in a certain way, that I now have this list of right things to do and I don't have the list of wrong things to do and I try to maximize this list and minimize this list. It says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. We touched on this last week. This is the message of the gospel. God changes hearts. He talks to Nicodemus, who is this religious Pharisee, right? And just like the Pharisees we're talking about before, Nicodemus is interested in, in how Jesus is talking and he's kind of like not knowing if this is the Messiah and they have this conversation. And he's basically asking Jesus, tell me, talk to me about life and community with God. What is going on here? You must be born again. You must be born again. And he's confused because that's like this weird thing. Like, I just want the law. I want to know what to do. You must be born again. You must be made new. You must be different. Did you partake in your first birth? Of course. We came down the birth canal. 
Did you initiate it? Did you start it? We are born and we're alive. And this is a great picture of the second birth, to be born again. That's what we need. Do we participate after God initiates? Yes. Does God initiate our second birth? Yes. We need to be born again. We need a heart transplant. We need the heart of stone to be taken out and the heart of flesh to be put in, okay? And again, we're going to get to this place of how, does it, how is it done, and I've, I've kind of gone there already, and then we're going to ask ourselves by the end why. So let's wrap up with verse 10 and 11 before Jerry picks up in verse 12 next week. Okay, let's wrap up here because it describes <clears throat> verse 10 and getting into 11 here in 1 Peter, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So do things. You've got gifts. God gave you gifts. God gave you abilities. God gave you, you know, a hundred different ways that you can serve people, whether it's with your money, whether it's with your time, whether it's with your talents, whether it's with your whatever. You've got gifts. Use it to serve one another. So do things as good stewards of God's very grace. So whoever has speaking gifts, let them do that, not for themselves, but by the power of God, the oracles of God, the word of God. So on God's behalf, Speak God's word, not your own word. Use your gifts the way God gave you the gift to serve. Whoever serves with their time and their energy and volunteering and all this stuff that we're supposed to be doing. Whoever does, do stuff. Do stuff as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So that's how we, I've already said it. We believe that God supplies the strength and the motivation, and why, and this is where we're going to end up today, and it's going to point towards next week on those suffering verses, why would we ever want to do this? You should never be in a system that just tells you to do stuff. I've, my favorite math students, when I was a high school math teacher, my, some of the best students just did their work, but my favorite students, if I can call them my favorite students, they were always asking, how do I do this? I'm not good at this. How do I get better? But also, why are we doing this? Why do I care about rationals? Why do I care about the unit circle? Why? When am I going to use this? Why are we acting the way that we're acting? Why am I trying to gouge sin out of my life? Why? In order that in everything, God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ, to him, be, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So we believe our actions are an expression, are downstream from our internal desires and affections. God changes us, and that brings not us glory, it brings him glory. We're broken and we're dead, and God brings a dead spirit to life, and that brings glory to God. It's all about God's glory. And we're going to see this. I'm going to jump ahead for 10 seconds here. Jerry's going to end up starting in 1 Peter 4.12. And remember, we haven't really talked about suffering today. We're going to get there next week. But 1 Peter 4.12 goes, right? Here's the climax of the book, I believe. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening, but rejoice, heart, 
internal affections, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The way that we suffer well is to be in love with God's glory. Because God's glory is demonstrated at the cross in Christ's sufferings. And so our sufferings, we can be glad and in love with God's glory. And that's, that's where we're at in verse 11 and through, 7 through 11 this week as well. Fall in love with God's glory. Even if it's not in a suffering, fall in love with God's glory. And that's how we can suffer well. Okay? So I'm super excited to hear what Jerry has to say next week. We're praying for him. He's in that mode of recovery with his knee. And uh, as we go through, you know, continue to read before and after these passages. Read through the whole book of 1 Peter this week. Just take the whole chunk. It's four chapters. It doesn't take long. Or just keep going over. the. They all fit together. They all fit together. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to be done. And um, that's that. So thanks for having me these, these last couple weeks. Uh, Bridge Church, we feel connected the way that we can feel connected in 2020 with the virtual services and uh, seeing you guys online and uh, socially distant and all that good stuff. But we're excited to kind of get things back to normal whenever that is and whenever it's safe. So join me in prayer and we'll be done for today. God, thank you for giving us your word. And thank you for giving us Jesus ultimately that he may be the true and better teacher and the better explainer of all these things. I pray that my words would just be completely lost and fall flat um, compared to what Jesus and, and, your, and your spirit can do with, with people's hearts, God. Thank you for this time, and thank you for this church. Amen.